In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we are in chapter 8 of Dr. David Scare's book on Christology. Chapter 8 is looking at Christ's descent into hell. We, uh, that, that chapter begins on page 83, and we just got over to 84 last week. Maybe two points to draw out from the outset. The article itself and the confession of this article is quite complex when viewed from a perspective of church history and what the various theologians of the church have had to say about Christ's descent into hell over the centuries. It gets quite complex as to the meaning. But for Lutherans, in terms of what our confessions assert and then bind us to, it's really rather quite simple. And so there's the the calm in the midst of the chaos, the eye in the middle of the storm, is what we Lutherans confess regarding the descent into hell is profoundly simple. For example, top of 83, where Dr. Scare quotes from the formula of Concord, solid declaration, herein the burial and descent into hell are differentiated as distinct articles, So so when we're confessing that he descended into hell, we're not just confessing that he descended into the realm of the dead, as it were, uh, and thus simply a restatement of his burial. We are actually confessing something different. And what is it that we believe? We simply believe, and if I could highlight a word for you, it would be simply. (laughs) We simply believe that after the burial, the entire person, God and man, descended into hell. There's the first differentiation then, properly speaking, God and man. He doesn't descend in spirit, okay, but as God and man, he descended into hell. And what did he do there? He did not suffer. He did not suffer. This is not part of his humiliation. It's part of his exaltation, part of his glorying, his glorification. He descended into hell and there conquered the devil, destroyed hell's power, and took from the devil all his might. So in that sense, I mean, again, we got into the complexity, and as I said last week, you're going to have more questions than answers probably at the end of this chapter. And while all of that remains true and valid, important to remember that the Lutheran confessions themselves are quite clear, quite simple in terms of what they teach and and then what they bind us to as, as Lutherans. All right, so then Dr. Scare was taking us on a tour of what the descent into hell is not. And of course, on the bottom of 83, you have the traditional Roman Catholic view of Christ departing into the limbus patrum, and we talked about that being an anteroom of hell in uh, Roman Catholic theology. Of course, the great weakness of this is where do you find any of this in Scripture? You don't. So we pass by that. And then you have the view in Calvin, very, very popular view in Reformed circles that Jesus uh, 
well, let me just read. Calvin and his followers understood the phrase to be an explanation of the suffering of Jesus. So uh, this idea that Jesus goes to hell to suffer, that's rejected also. Again, you really can't find a, you really can't find a scrap of evidence, scripturally speaking. There is no verse whatsoever that says Christ descended to suffer. There's actually, I don't think, I mean, of course, as a Lutheran, I don't confess this, but just objectively speaking, there would be more biblical data, misinterpreted, misread, as I believe it is, for the descent into the limbo of the fathers and the pulling out all of the Old Testament saints. There would be more biblical evidence for that than for this idea that Christ somehow suffers uh, there. All right, and then over on the top of 84, and we're getting close to where we left off in the middle of this paragraph. Uh, in fact, maybe let's simply pick up on the fourth line from the top. I know this will be retreading some ground here, but it might be just as easy. Fourth line from the top of 84. These two views, which see the descent as an explanation either of the suffering of Jesus or of the fact of his death, hold that it is part of the humiliation and that Christ's resurrection is the first step of his glorification. So, again, you can see the issue there because for Lutherans, and I would say, too, this is true for, oh, my goodness, the vast, vast, vast majority of, uh, of uh, respectable church theologians on this question, did Christ go to suffer or uh, did Christ descend into hell to suffer, or did he descend into hell as part of his glorification and triumph? If you were to survey the church fathers and, and theologians for 2,000 years, almost all of them, except for the Reformed, would say he went to triumph, to conquer as part of his glorification. Uh, yet one more example where, you know, quote-unquote Protestantism, the Radical Reformation, is, even though it surrounds us and seems to be the majority view from our little context here in Southern California, globally and historically speaking, it's that that is the minority, and we're standing with the great mass of uh, Christendom on this and many other points. All right, continuing with Scare, another view teaches that Christ's descent to hell was a continuation of the preaching of salvation which Jesus did while on earth. Those holding this view are divided between those who see it as an actual event and those who see it as mythological, or I would again say poetic, might be a way to understand that, not literal. Both viewpoints are inherently universalistic in that they teach that people originally condemned or not having heard the gospel are given a chance to repent. As we discussed uh, at the end, I think after the camera stopped rolling last week, there was an article written some years ago by an LCMS pastor uh, regarding this, and he was basically asserting this in one way, shape, or form. I find his, I find his article entirely con convoluted and beyond parsing out. But basically the assertion is we don't have to worry about every soul hearing the gospel here on earth because when they die and go to hell, either Christ, it's unclear, but either Christ or his apostles are still there preaching the gospel to... I mean, so this is kind of the weirdness you get when you go off the rails on this doctrine. And by the way, that was held by some early church fathers. So 
that's, that's really the tradition he's drawing on to make those claims. The problem is those claims are just never acknowledged by a, a whole other set of fathers uh, along with the Lutheran tradition. So this idea that people get a second chance or this idea that Christ totally empties hell so that there's no one who's damned, we reject both of those ideas as Lutherans. We just don't see that in Scripture. One would think that that would be, if it were true, that would be such a big deal that the scriptures would say it all over the place. Instead, what do the scriptures say all over the place? Really the opposite. It's, it's appointed for a man to die once and then the judgment and repent and believe and there's all this imminence and urgency placed on preaching the gospel and receiving the gospel, believing in Christ Jesus. Uh, there's, there's very little hint of anywhere in the scriptures where, where you get this idea from Jesus or apostles of like, hey, everyone, let's just relax and take it down a notch. Uh, you know, after they descend into darkness and feel the fires for a few decades or centuries, then they'll come around. Yeah, never. Never. Hey, let's chill out, everyone. They get a second chance in hell. Never. I mean, that, kind of, that way of thinking, that mode of speech, that relaxation that that doctrine would cause, it's completely foreign to the scriptures. All right. So we can, we can pretty easily negate that. All right, so scare again, taking us on a tour of what we don't confess about the descent into hell and picking up where we left off. The formula of Concord, again, confessional document from the Book of Concord. The formula of Concord does not duplicate any of these because it holds to an appearance of Christ who went in both body and soul in hell to proclaim victory over Satan. Here's a quotation from the formula. It is enough to know that Christ went to hell. Don't you love that? I do. We, we, saw, we saw the language of simply in the earlier quote, and now it is enough. Obviously, we are going to hold out that there is, a, there is a lot that we do not know about this article. Scripture doesn't teach us or tell us very much about this article. We are going to, in humility, limit ourselves to the claims we make. So, once more, it is enough to know that Christ went to hell, destroyed hell for all believers, and has redeemed them from the power of death, of the devil, and of the eternal damnation of the hellish jaws. So, in other words, not going down there to suffer, but going down there to proclaim his victory, to enact his victory, to assert his dominance over hell and its powers. That's the Lutheran confession. And we're going to see the scriptural grounding for that confession coming up shortly. Scare continues, making the article complex for a confessional Lutheran theology is the fact that Luther's Torgau sermon which is authoritative for the formula of Concord's Solid Declaration, Article 9, does not make use of 1 Peter 3, 18 through 19, the locus classicus for Christ's descent into hell. Now, this point that Scare is making is insider baseball, Lutheran baseball, because when we, are, when we in the formula of Concord are making our confession about what the descent into hell is, we're basing that confession upon Luther's Torgau sermon, uh, this sermon where he preaches on the descent into hell. It's a beautiful sermon. I intend to preach on it 
one of these upcoming Easter's because it's beautiful, it's glorious, and it talks about Christ being raised in his body to conquer the powers of hell. It's something we need to hear and hear over and over again. That's the Torgau Sermon. But now think about the foundations. So Formula of Concord has as its foundation Torgau Sermon. Torgau Sermon has as its foundation what? Not 1 Peter 3, which is the descent of Christ into prison to proclaim to the spirits, okay? And that is very typically the foundation for Lutherans, the foundation for the later Western church. That's sort of the locus classicus or the proof text for this descent into hell. So that complicates things, Dr. Scare is saying. That's really his only point. So if Luther doesn't focus on 1 Peter 3, what does he focus on? Scare continues. The sermon, Luther's Torgau sermon, seems rather to rely more on Jesus' parable of the strong man, which in the synoptic gospel serves to explain his exercising demons. And then uh, three references in the gospels given to uh, this, the, the discussion of the strong man and the exercising of demons. These two traditions should be presented separately and then brought together. So the binding of the strong man, of course, you recall Christ's teaching, how can you plunder a strong man's house unless you first bind the strong man? You know, it's really kind of a humorous way that Christ speaks, and it's one of, these, one of these things that if you were hearing it for the first time would catch you off guard, and it still ought to catch us off guard from time to time. I mean, Jesus is basically comparing his act of salvation to breaking and entering. This world belongs to the God of this world. This world has become Satan's home and the haunt of demons. And when Christ descends into it via his incarnation, what he is doing is, well, I mean, if you imagine being a criminal, you can't very well break into someone's house and pillage it, especially if the owner is a strong man and he's sitting there like, you know, beating you on the back with his baseball bat or macing you or whatever it may be. You're not going to get very much plunder out. So Jesus says, come on, think like a criminal. You need to tie him up first. Then you can get get all his goods out. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He comes into the world by his death and resurrection. He binds Satan. He binds his power. So now Satan, who who could, uh, you know, with unbridled ability, accuse us of our sins. Now that's bridled. Now that's bound. There's the forgiveness of sins. And he could point to our death as God's a profound and everlasting judgment and final verdict upon us. Now there's a resurrection. It's not so final, is it? So Satan's power is entirely bound and limited by Christ. And now what is Christ doing? Plundering his house. Generation after generation, he is just, you know, picking us all up in the sack of his holy Christian church and leading us up into heaven one by one, church by church, generation by generation, robbing the devil blind. So it's just beautiful imagery. But in order to bind the strong man, of course, you have to be what? A stronger man. <laughs> a stronger man. And so this is precisely uh, Luther's point, is that Christ proves to be the stronger man, the, the true God of this world, stronger than the devil. And that definitively on the cross and definitively in the quickening, the ma- being made alive in his body, thus he goes down to enact and proclaim this Uh, to Satan on his own turf, so to speak, in the abyss where uh, Satan is and his his minions, that's that's their abode, properly speaking. All right, so then we have these 
two traditions we're going to explore. First Peter 3 that talks about a descent and proclamation, and then this binding of the strong man that I've just articulated here. And as Scare says, we're going to present them separately and then bring them together. So that's the plan moving forward. Yes, sir. I was reading the, uh, First Peter 3, 19. Uh-huh. Where it says, in which he went and proclaimed to, this, to the dead that it's in hell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they can bring him up. Not to bring them up. That's the so. It's, 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 it sounds similar to what it says to proclaim mm-hmm. the spirits in prison. In prison means in hell, right? Yes. So that's what. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that. Let me let me try to address your point right off the bat, and just for the sake of those listening online, uh, the point that you're making is in First Peter three. Doesn't it teach a descent and a preaching of Jesus, and does it go beyond that? Um, let's answer that question by simply opening to 1 Peter 3, and let's just do a, a quick textual study of this so that we've got the groundwork in our mind. As Dr. Scare is going to say, it's verses 18 through 22. I grabbed my uh, New King James Version today, and if you've got a Lutheran study Bible, that's going to be ESV. That's going to be uh, equal to the New King James, if not maybe even a little better. And you're going to have the advantage of the study notes there as well, but they are, if I recall, rather truncated on this section. Anyway, this is a very difficult and controversial section of Scripture in and of itself, and it has a complicated, complicated uh, exegetical history. Uh, So complicated, in fact, that Augustine, while he fully believed and confessed the descent of Christ into hell, said this passage has nothing to do with it whatsoever. Now, Lutherans traditionally have not followed Augustine on this point, but I simply bring that up because it gives you some of the breadth and scope with which the church has viewed this passage. Okay, so simply going to 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Okay, what are we talking about there? The cross, obviously suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, or the righteous for the unrighteous. What are we talking about there? Christ the just one, Christ the righteous one, suffering on behalf of we who are unjust, we who are unrighteous. So the sweet swap, (laughs) as it were, that he might bring us to God. When we reflect back on the earlier chapter, those who deny the vicarious atonement, how do you do that and read this passage? The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. It requires the atonement. Okay, being put to death in the flesh. Now this is where things get a little complicated. If it just said being put to death, that would actually make things a little easier for us. It says being put to death in the flesh. Just keep that in mind. But what would we say? We would basically say that that's what the creed says, died and was buried, put to death in the flesh. Okay. Now the parallel is, but made alive by the Spirit. Does the ESV capitalize Spirit? Does not leaves it leaves it lowercase. Yeah, the N the, the the NKJV the New King James Version capitalizes it. You can see what a difference that is. Okay. So what would be the rationale for not capitalizing it? That that flesh is an opposite of the Holy Spirit, 
Flesh is talking about his simply uh, being put to death in the flesh means he died in the bodily mode of existence. And then, and then what does he was made alive by the Spirit? He was made alive in the resurrected mode of existence. Okay. That's, that's probably exactly right. And if memory serves, that is the way Luther takes it. Again, it's a little complex in terms of the interpretive background of this, but as you can see, we're not yet really at any material point other than perhaps this question of did Jesus descend into hell as true God, true man, that is embodied, right? This verse would be germane to that specific point, but not to the descent proper or to what he's doing during the descent. All right, so being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit can be these two different modes of being, which to me makes quite a lot of sense. Or you can simply take the one put to death in the flesh, that is, was crucified, died to this earthly life in existence, and then was raised by the Holy Spirit. Why does the New King James favor that? We already heard the strength for the ESV, keeping it a small s. The strength for capitalizing S is in the next clause. By whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison. If he's simply raised in this new spiritual resurrected mode of existence, in what sense, or what sense does it make to say by whom, right, he went? And so that, thus the New King James Version capitalizes spirit. You can see the difficulty right there. You have a sort of fork in the road in terms of your interpretation and reading on that point. Again, it's not terribly germane or pertinent for uh, our, our consideration of the descent proper and what it is that Christ was doing, but it's part of the background of this text. Okay, so again, just picking up mid-sentence, chap uh, chapter 3, verse 19 by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Okay. Now, this seems simple enough unless you consider who are these spirits. Who are the spirits in prison? In the ancient world, certainly at the time in which Peter is writing this, but virtually for the entirety of the ancient world, prison is more a place where one... Uh, especially this term, fulake, is, is more typically a place where one awaits final judgment and the sentence. Uh, unlike the American West, the vast majority, uh, for the vast majority of history, and I think that this probably remains true even globally today, there's no such thing as lifelong incarceration where society is going to put food in your, on your plate and cable television on your screen and clothes on your back and everything else. The modern prison system that we know and have is quite alien. In the ancient world, you would be sent to a work camp, and sometimes that is called prison. That's where, um, for example, Jesus teaches this frequently in, in his imagery and his symbolism, uh, where, uh, well, it came up in Matthew 18 just a few weeks ago with the unforgiving servant and his master, before his master forgives him, he's going to sell him into slavery. Okay? Uh, then, when the unforgiving servant himself is forgiven, he goes out and, and chokes the man who owes him 100 denarii. 
he says that he's going to put him in prison until he pays every last cent. There you get the broader understanding that prison in the ancient world is a way, uh, is basically slavery. It's a way and mode. I mean, you go to the work camp and maybe you collect funds and then you're able to pay those funds back. But it's, it's hardly sitting in a concrete cell with cable TV. That's not what's going on there. So that helps us, that helps us understand that the language of Fulake prison is a place or abode where the inhabitants are waiting final judgment and final sentencing. That would accord perfectly with the biblical understanding of what hell is. Remember the parallels here, C.S. Lewis is excellent on this point too, um, but the parallels here is that hell as we think of it, if you were to reject Christ, not believe in Christ, you were to die and go to hell, that hell is just a waiting room. It is emptied at Christ's return where all the inhabitants of hell are raised in their bodies on the last day. They face the final judgment and then they are sentenced and excused to eternal and everlasting darkness. You can see an example of this uh, in Matthew chapter 25 where Christ has the sheep on one hand and on the right hand and the goats on the left. Okay. Likewise, heaven is a waiting room. We go to heaven disembodied, that is, in our souls. Okay. And there we are with the Lord in paradise, but we are waiting for the resurrection of our bodies, our final vindication at the last judgment, and then to be ushered into the new heavens and the new earth. You see? So the way we think of it, very frequently in Christianity, especially here in America, we get this dead wrong. We have a Gnostic view. When you die, you either go to hell for all eternity or you go to heaven for all eternity. While that may be correctly understood and may just be an inaccurate way of speaking, it lends itself to a complete misunderstanding. It lends itself to a negation of the resurrection of our bodies and the final uh, reality for Christians, which is to be in our bodies for all eternity, bodies made perfect, glorified as Christ is glorified, inheriting the new heavens and the new earth, a, a physical place uh, of wonder and glory and awe. So that's what's at stake here. Okay, so back to the text. Um, we have Christ put to death. We have Christ in one way, shape, or form made alive, whether by the Spirit or in the resurrected mode, it doesn't materially matter because either way he's made alive. He was put to death on the cross. He was made alive, quickened on Easter morning. Okay? And then he descends to preach to the spirits in prison. Well, we've established where prison is, but that leaves ambiguous then who the spirits are. Are the spirits fallen angels or are the spirits fallen men? Or is the answer yes, both, right? Okay, there's a question, and you can, you can see how this splinters off as interpreters take their different views. Now, it is complicated once more by what comes next. Verse 20 modifies the spirits in prison. And we are told that these are they who, now quoting, who formerly were disobedient when the once when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now that is odd. That is odd. Why would it just, why would it just mention the pre-diluvian, pre-flood 
people who rejected the preaching of Noah, rejected the preaching of Adam and his children about the coming of the Christ. Why would Peter's text single them out? Here, too, you see why many, many church fathers in the early church didn't think this view had anything to do with the descent into hell because the descent into hell would be a universal proclamation to everyone who's in hell, not just to this select few. Now, you can work around that, and here's how you work around that. These select few are mentioned by Peter because of his rhetorical purpose which is to drive us to baptism. That's the rhetorical purpose. That's where we're going. So how do, you get from the, how do you get from the crucifixion, the resurrection, the descent into hell, into ultimately baptism, which is our good standing before God with a clean conscience, etc.? Okay. And you might make that move by arguing that he goes to preach. So this would be the take, and this is the Lutheran take that he goes to hell to preach to everyone, but Peter singles out this group in order to contrast them with the faithful, Noah and seven others, by which then Peter is going to teach the parallel. You have the vast majority of the human race perishing today in rejection of Christ and only a remnant being saved through the waters. Just as Noah and seven others were saved through the waters of the flood, we are being saved through the waters of holy baptism. Thus, Peter's you know, climactic point, baptism now saves you. Right? The waters that destroyed the world in the flood simultaneously saved Noah and seven others. Right? The water of baptism that now destroys the sinful man within us and buries him in Christ's tomb, that water now saves us. Okay, so that would... So I just flipped off my mic. Let me make sure I've got it on. Yes, that would be then uh, the, the Lutheran, the historic Lutheran way of reading this text, by and large. By and large. So let's simply pick up once more, mid-sentence, and, and then as we, after we've sifted through this, we'll read it all from the top. So... Picking up at verse 20, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism not the removal of the filth from the flesh. Remember, baptism simply means washing. She's not saying, hey, not by taking a shower, not by a ritual cleaning, not by getting the dirt off your skin. That's not what baptism is. Not by uh, removal of the filth of the flesh. And then this could be taken in a deeper sense too, and frequently is, um, that the old Adam in baptism doesn't immediately become removed. He still clings to us. And so it's not as if baptism that destroyed and washed away all the wicked, or excuse me, the flood which destroyed and washed away all the wicked is paralleled in baptism which utterly wipes out the flesh and the filth of the flesh within us. That remains until our dying day. 
And that, that too is a way to understand this, and perhaps even a better way to understand this. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. That's what baptism is. Baptism is a good conscience toward God. How so? Because we simply proclaim what God himself has said about baptism, that baptism is a lavish washing way of sin, that baptism cleanses us, that baptism is a new birth and regeneration in the Holy Spirit, etc., etc. So then, even though the flesh still clings to me, I have a clean conscience before God on account of my baptism. I recognize that God has saved me through baptism, just as he saved Noah through the waters of the flood. Baptism now saves me. So, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. That's exactly what baptism is. And then, as if this sentence were not long and complex enough, it continues. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, connecting the idea of baptism with resurrection. As Christ is raised, so I am baptized, I am raised with him. That's Romans 6. And here Peter is very much doing Romans 6 theology. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now, if you focus your attention on what Peter says about Jesus, very clearly you have these data points. He died. He was made alive. He descended and preached. He ascended into heaven. He is, has all authority and authority over all uh, principalities and powers, etc. Authorities and powers. That is almost identical to a rudimentary creed. A rudimentary apostles creed. It's got the main points. Died, made alive, that is raised, descended into hell, ascended into heaven, reigns until his return. Okay, so that really is the backbone of what Peter's doing. All right, now, from this, what do Lutherans take? Lutherans take, well, he was quickened, made alive, and then he descended, whether you take that in the small s way, the mode of being, or the capital S way, that the Spirit is the one who raised him. Okay, he's died, he's raised, and uh, he is descending into hell. He is proclaiming, and then he is... uh, what, what is skipped here, of course, is the, the 40 days where Jesus is showing himself raised to uh, the church. Uh, and then he, is asc- he ascends into heaven, and everything is made subject to him. So, okay, yes, so f- your follow-up question here. So when he went to hell and proclaimed, he didn't go to hell to bring all the spirits from hell up. Just for him to proclaim his... His uh, victory is basically that's how it is, right? Not to bring those people back up. Right. Right. So, so the question is, he didn't descend into hell in order to bring all those people back up. You can see that this text says nothing about that. Yeah. So if one wants to hold that view, you can't hold it on the basis of 1 because, Peter 3. Because what it says to preach to the spirits mm-hmm. in prison. Is mm-hmm. that, that, it sounds like he's preaching to the dead in hell. 
Yes. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question whether spirits there means fallen angels or unbelievers or both. I, again, theologically speaking, it could be either, and it doesn't even really matter, because what is, what is he proclaiming? He's not proclaiming an offer of salvation to them. He's proclaiming his power over them. I mean, they, they put him to death, but he was raised. They rejected him, but he was raised. And uh, now he has authority over all of them. This last line is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. That tends to color. People want to read spirits as angels on account of that last line because it appears to be what Peter has in view is triumphing over the evil fallen angels, uh, the spirits who are in prison, who led the people, and then in particular those who led the people astray prior to the flood, prior to the flood. Um, there are a number of forks in the road there exegetically, but that I'm just trying to give you a flavor for how this has been read. As I said before, I mean, just again, to, to give you a flavor for how wildly different this is read, Augustine sees the reference to Christ preaching to the spirits in prison as uh, who formerly were disobedient in, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. He sees this primarily as a reference to something that happened prior to the flood. So you, then what you have is you have Christ's uh, death, his resurrection, this idea of the pre-Diluvian flood was covered by his proclamation and uh, they rejected him. Now he is, and thus there was this baptism by which Noah was saved and seven others. So you've got this parallel now to where the proclamation of Christ is going now in the post-Diluvian world and is being rejected by many, but it is baptism that saves those who believe. So you've got this kind of parallelism, and I may not have done Augustine perfect justice there, but that's, that's his point. So he would say that this doesn't have anything to do with the descent into hell confessed in the creed. We Lutherans obviously hold that it does. Now, please take, please take my work with you in this text as just a preliminary explanation, trying to show you an overarching view of the different contours of the text and sort of the major exegetical forks in the road here. And let's simply go into uh, the new paragraph on page 84 with Dr. Scare, and let's let him uh, lead us along then. So 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 through 22, Scare writes, where the reference to Christ preaching to imprisoned souls is found. Now notice what he's done there already. He's made a determination. He said souls is found, has all the marks of an ancient creed. Okay, well, that was pointed out to you. Used in Rome uh, when, whence his, excuse me, me, try this again. Used in Rome whence this epistle originates, it was probably already in use in the apostolic period in connection with baptism, which is mentioned as the instrument of salvation in 1 Peter 3.21. The Petrine Creed conveniently divides, all he means is Peter's Creed in 1 Peter 3. The Petrine Creed 
conveniently divides the life of Christ into his humiliation and exaltation. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, so that he might lead you to God. He was put to death in the days of his flesh, and then scare parenthetically includes humiliation, and made alive in the spirit. Notice what scare has done, small s, spirit. And then uh, uh, has put here in parentheses, exaltation. Okay, so you do see a division there in the text between what we, as uh, later theologians, call humiliation versus exaltation. Scare continues. The NIV, different translation, understands pneuma. That's the Greek word for spirit that we've just seen. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's the question. Is it, is it Holy Spirit, capital S, or is it small s? The, the mode of being. So the NIV understands Numa as the Holy Spirit who brought Jesus back to life. And that, by the way, is the take of the New King James Version, too, as I pointed out. This is problematic, Scare continues. Flesh would also have to be taken as a dative of means. That is, the spirit is the thing that raises him, so if it's parallel, then the flesh has to be the, the thing that puts him to death, which doesn't make sense, right? Um, so, that, so that's all he means by dative of means. Jesus was not put to death by his flesh. Rather, the word flesh refers to the period of suffering and humiliation, as it does in Hebrews 5.7 where Jesus is described as offering up prayers for his rescue during the days of his flesh. So the period of suffering and humiliation, his earthly mode and manner of being would be a shorthand way of doing that. Scare continues, Thus, in his glorified state, Christ went and preached to those who are described as disobedient in the days of Noah. A somewhat different view was taken by Martin Charlemagne, who understood the dative as one of reference. This is referring to Greek grammar. A similarity was seen between 1 Peter 3, 18 through 19, and the raising of Jairus' daughter in Luke 8, 55, where uh, her spirit returns to her. See the small s, spirit returns to her. Charlemagne claimed that Jesus was brought to life in the sense that his spirit returned to his body. That's a slightly different take than either of the two that I presented to you earlier. So here's yet another take. Charlemagne came nevertheless to the same conclusion that Christ went to hell in his body and not his soul alone. Quote, by way of summary, it may be said that 1 Peter 3, 18 through 19 quite evidently tells us that Christ, according to his glorified body, descended into hell to make proclamation there of himself as the Messiah, end quote. That coming from Charlemagne. Pieper, again, foremost Lutheran dogmatician, Pieper follows Luther in seeing this as a reference to what he calls the heavenly life that is his state of exaltation, the position which still seems to be the most plausible. Okay, so in other words, that's what I was getting at with the modes of being. Put to death in his flesh, that's his earthly mode and way of being. He dies on the cross, made alive in the spirit. 
refers not so much to the spirit entering his body again, his soul entering the body, not referring so much to the Holy Spirit resurrecting him, but rather to his new resurrected spiritual mode of presence, you see, and way of being. So that's Luther's position. That's uh, what Scare likes. That's what Peeper likes. That's what Rody likes for what, whatever that's worth. Uh, picking back up then after uh, the footnote four. To take, quote-unquote, spirit as a reference to the divine nature alone is problematic. If you want to say that in, he didn't descend in his body, just in his divine nature, then you've got to try to make spirit mean divine nature, which you can't really do, but people have tried. To take spirit as reference to the divine nature alone is problematic, since the human nature would thereby be excluded in the descent. And you also have a problem there, too, because then you have to have a reincarnation at the point of the, at the, point of the resurrection. It is clear, however, that Christ's human and not his divine nature was made alive by the Spirit. <laughs> That's a great statement. It's just very obvious. Um, Christ's human nature is what's made alive, not his divine nature. The suggestion that Christ went to hell only according to his divine nature is troublesome for at least two reasons. The descent to hell involves the concept of Jesus Christ as God's representative man who has overcome death. And the second, Adam conquered Satan in the place and for the benefit of the first Adam who succumbed to Satan and died. Lutheran Christology with its doctrine of the communication of attributes, would be hard-pressed to explain why, at this point, a disruption between the divine and human in Jesus was possible. Or necessary, or needed, or even taught by the Scriptures. I don't know. That strikes me as a particularly weak position. Not only exegetically, but then, as Scare's pointing out here, dogmatically. All right. So, I hope I'm not losing you here. All right. We're doing the best we can through complicated stuff. Next paragraph, bottom of 85. Those in the, per, in the prison are described as disobedient. Disobedience is a typical word in the New Testament for unbelief. You can think about that too sometimes where you've been confused. Where people talk about obeying Jesus or obeying the gospel. And clearly the context is salvific. There, the language of obey or obedience is really the language of faith. So disobedience would be unbelief. Scare continues, The audience of Jesus preaching were those who refused to repent when Noah preached impending doom by the flood and salvation, a theme duplicated in 2 Peter 2.5 and already found in the Gospels. Uh, for example, Matthew 24, 37 through 38, and Luke 17, 26 through 27. Some have concluded, perhaps with valid reasons, that these spirits, the disembodied dead, so you can see Scare here uh, giving way what he, uh, what he holds, the disembodied dead also included fallen angels. All right, so his point is there's no, there's no need to exclude fallen angels here from this group, since the passage concludes with a reference to the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension and session at God's right hand, all of which are creedal statements, 
come from the creed. It, it might, or they find their home in the creed. It might be concluded that the descent was prior to the actual assuming of his body in the resurrection. Now, that's a false position that Scare's pointing out. This is not necessarily so, since the reference to his resurrection would be to his appearance with his body on earth. His glorification in the Spirit would refer to the resumption of his body, inasmuch as the word for, quote-unquote, being made alive involves a glorification of the body. Compare John 5.21, quote, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. End quote. Here, glorification involves bodily resurrection. Uh, this is a so. If you take the creed, um, just even in the language we have it, He was crucified. He is, He dies. Is buried. Descends into hell. Is raised on the third day. Just the way that sounds in your ear sounds like he descended into hell prior to his resurrection. But what does 1 Peter 3 teach? He was first made alive in the Spirit, and then he descends into hell. So, Scripture teaches he's raised and then descends. Is the creed in error? No. We just need to educate ourselves with a distinction that is used by those authors of the creed and those who have confessed it, that there's a difference between, and here's the language that's good to use, the difference between the quickening, the being made alive, and the resurrection proper, Jesus showing himself to the women and to his disciples outside of the tomb. You see how those are two different things? I mean, even just think very simply. He was quickened in his body prior to showing himself raised to the women and his disciples. Make sense? Okay. So then he can be quickened, and at the moment of his quickening, uh, descend into hell, make this proclamation, and then show himself resurrected, thus the reference in the creed, um, uh, show himself resurrected to the women and to the disciples. So when we confess that he's crucified, died, is buried, descended into hell, rose from the dead, we're actually not, I mean, we're not explicitly mentioning what Peter 3 mentions, that he was quickened, descended into hell, shows himself resurrected or is raised from the dead. Okay? So that's, uh, that's some of the complicated background in how 1 Peter 3 interfaces with the Apostles' Creed as we have it today. So challenging, to be sure, challenging, and causes you to sort of have to wrap your mind around things differently. One really easy way, and this is why Scare keeps referring to humiliation and glorification, is because one really easy way to have this in mind is crucified, died, and buried. That's the end of his humiliation descended into hell, was raised on the third day, etc., is the, his glorification. As soon as you put that wedge between uh, died and was buried, that clause, and you put the wedge between that and uh, was raised, okay, that wedge is the, is, or excuse me, gosh, can I get this right, please? Let me try this again so I don't utterly confuse you. The line in the creed was crucified, died, and was buried, Put a wedge right there. 
descended into hell, was raised. Okay? That wedge marks the difference between humiliation and glorification. That wedge marks the place of his quickening, his being made alive in the spirit, 1 Peter 3. This doesn't require you to confess the creed differently. doesn't even necessarily require you to understand the creed differently. It just requires you to have this fine point from 1 Peter 3 inserted into your understanding. And a great mode and means of doing that is the distinction between humiliation and glorification. Glorification, by the way, means the same thing as exaltation. So sometimes you'll hear it as humiliation, exaltation, humiliation, glorification, same thing. So, let me pause here, see how badly I've befuddled you through all of this. So that means he was, uh, he was basically alive before he descended That's basically Yes, he was alive in his body, he was resurrected in his body before he descends into hell. He made alive and then he descended into hell. Yes, exactly as Peter said. Dies in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, descends into hell, proclaims, right? And then, uh, and then ascends, and the way Peter has it is, it's, there's a, a partial reference there to his resurrection, but ultimately his view is his ascension. Because what is, what is Peter's ultimate goal in terms of his Christology in this section? It's to show that Jesus is Lord over, over heaven, earth, and hell. He's Lord over everything. He's Lord of the spirits in hell. He's Lord of the people on earth. He's, Lord, he's set in heaven in such a way that he's above all angels and authorities. And So that's really the point. Peter's making Christologically. That would be the point of the creed proper of that section in 1 Peter 3. The baptismal references give it a different angle and insert us into the equation. And we see ourselves then as parallel to Noah in the days of the flood, Noah and the seven others being saved through water. The New Testament parallel is we're being saved through baptism. That's our place in the Christological framework. Yes. He, uh, he established his lordship in hell, on earth, and in heaven. Yes. Instead of not proclaiming only the gospel to save the, 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 the unrighteous in hell, but is to establish his lordship in all these places. Yes, very well said. So the comment for those of you listening online then it up, of course, and um, yeah, yes, a- absolutely. Wherever you have, wherever you have texts referring to the judgment of Christ and His judgment, not over all, not only over all people, but over all angels, right? Um, you you have this lordship motif and this idea that by His death and resurrection, He has all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to Him, and thus He is fit to judge all. And in justice and righteousness, he judges and has some depart into eternal damnation and some depart into eternal life. Again, the point of the final judgment, I mean, it's not, the final judgment isn't very shock, isn't shocking at all, I would argue, for many people. I mean, it might be initially shocking for that minority of people who's alive on earth when Christ comes and they say, oh no, it's Jesus. I mean, at that point in time, I... It's no surprise when you say, oh no, it's Jesus, and you're terrified at his coming, there's no longer any surprise as to whose side you're on. And those who die and are already in fulike, prison, that's the word Peter uses, and are awaiting the judgment, there's no surprise. I mean, when they're raised in their body, it's not like, 
oh, I don't know whose side I'm on or, or where I'm going. So the judgment isn't so much uh, uh, this surprise as it is Christ, who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, executes exactly what he has said, preached, and proclaimed, does so with definitive authority so that his judgment is made manifest to all. And then you have the public close of the age, which is what we're all looking forward to. Oh, gosh. Fantastic. Yeah. Let's, let's get to the end of this book, close the cover, open a new one. <laughs> yeah. Or at least chapter. All right. Any, uh, anything else we want to touch on on what we've covered so far? Now, this isn't exactly a clean break right here at this section. We're still going to refer to 1 Peter 3, but I'm seeing we only have three minutes left. I'm also seeing that I've exhausted myself, let alone you, I'm sure. So... If there's nothing else, maybe we'll take a break here at this point, and next week we'll pick up on page 86, the first full paragraph. The Lord be with you.